0: Mina Montessario, surrounded by yellow-clad penitents, descends into one of the many spiral stone stairways. Above stands the brutalist temple to Brahm, the Deathwalker. Below lies the necropolis, a vaulted and pillared undercroft that extends the full footprint of the mighty temple. When she last descended these steps, she did so in secret, intent upon trailing the mysterious machine cultists. This time, she can barely move for pilgrims and members of the priesthood. Today is the holiest day in the Branian calendar, and this public ceremony of the necropolis, down among the dead, is perhaps its most sacred. Over the course of an hour, she moves slowly and silently with the crowd, head bowed respectfully, passing between pillars carved in the likenesses of those that lie buried here. At last, she reaches the place where she saw the cultists gather, a wide pool of still, black water. Her heart sinks. She had thought it unlikely she would find any trace of her quarry here, but this is worse than she feared. Any possible clues have long since been trampled into the earth by the passage of a thousand pilgrims' feet. Plan B, then. Into the pool. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the D&D 5th Edition rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning, following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Mina found sanctuary at an inn called The Missing Link, and then almost blew herself up trying to open the visitor's folder without checking it first for magical traps. Her dreams that night were troubled, to say the least, and included victims of the fire in the spot and the corpse of her dead father. Despite this, she woke with new certainty as to her next steps and spent two days in a preparation montage. Before setting out on her mission, she checked in on a dead drop and was rewarded with a positive message from the Whisperer, or at least not a negative one, which with him amounts to about the same thing. Encouraged, she set out for the necropolis. Part of that final scene in the previous episode was more foreshadowing than mechanics. The metal man she was working on is not available to her yet as a class feature, and she had no chance of getting it working. But if she does make it to level 3, it will become quite important. She can only have two infusions active at once, and so she's kept her arcane gun but dropped the magical box, slash bag of holding. She's replaced that with another magic item infusion, which we'll see in use shortly. The dead drop came about through a random event, which took place when I rolled doubles, asking the question, does Mina get two days to recover? The answer to that was yes. The random event was, move towards a thread. And the thread I randomly selected was, resolve trouble with the whisperer. The move towards event in Mythic means I make progress towards, but don't achieve, my goal. The exchange of dead drop messages seemed the simplest way to accomplish that. By contrast, the other random event I rolled in this scene did close off a thread. At the very start of the scene, my adjustment check revealed an interrupted scene. The event turned out to be close a thread, and the thread that I had to close was explain the explosion in the sky. That didn't seem important enough to base a whole scene around, and so instead I tossed it in as an aside later in the scene. Sometimes changing the order of the results Mythic gives you can help create a bit more of a coherent narrative. Right. That's enough of that. Let's find out what awaits Mina in the inky depths. Mina recalls the site, hidden behind this very pillar She had watched the assembled members of the cult as they waited, circled around the pool, standing in silence. Time had seemed to stretch out endlessly, and Mina had known she risked discovery at any moment. She had been certain that the thumping of her heart and the ragged sound of her breath would give her away. Then, something had risen to the surface of the pool's still waters. And then another something. One by one... Floating barrels had appeared, and between them had emerged figures clad in black, full body oilskin suits with riveted, hexagonal helmets of metal and glass. Piperunners. The city of Kairos, built by dwarven engineers at the command of the Archdominar, rests upon a single link of the Great North Chain. That link is fully three miles in length and perhaps half that wide. But the city does not rest directly on the link. Far below the city streets lies a vast network of tunnels and pipes that serve as the city's heating and sanitation network the underpipes. And keeping this unmappable, incomprehensibly complex, labyrinthine superstructure in regular running order are the pipe runners. This group of men, women, and children who live most of their lives deep in the underpipes are the only ones who can brave its dangers, who know its secrets, and who can navigate its endless passages in order to keep the whole edifice from falling into disrepair. The city above owes much to these brave and hardy souls. Or so Mina had always been led to believe. Seeing pipe-runners supplying the cult of the Great Machine with barrels that she subsequently found to be holding infernal powder, that was something... That didn't fit with her preconceived notions of who the pipe runners were, and it raises many, many questions. There is only one place she is going to find the answers to those questions. She is going to have to enter the underpipes. So Kairos has its own mega dungeon, lurking far beneath the city streets. Undercity sewers are a pretty classic staple of D&D harking all the way back to some of the earliest modules, so it seemed like a pretty logical choice to dial them up to 11 for this game. We need some dungeon to go with our urban. The underpipes are also canon, based on previous gaming in this setting. Of course, I had absolutely no desire to draw out an insanely complex, multi-level, three mile by one and a half mile mega dungeon, and so instead I turned to a tool that I first heard about in Season 1 of Me, Myself and Die, a little book called The Perilous Wilds. This book is designed for Dungeon World, a Powered by the Apocalypse game, but a great deal of the content within it can be ported with no trouble at all into other systems. It's an amazing little book with a ton of great content between its slim covers. One chapter in particular is useful here. Plumb the Depths. Instead of mapping out a dungeon in the traditional way, Perilous Wilds takes a much more abstract approach. You start by deciding the dungeon size, in this case it's huge, and then you come up with a corresponding number of themes and areas that might crop up along the way. My five themes for this dungeon are Damage and Decay, Arcane Mechanisms, Shadowy Forces, Water and Incredible Power. I then had 25 common and 25 unique areas to name. I managed to get about 60% of the way through all of those, and then decided to leave the rest blank. If I come across those, I'll use Mythic to help figure out what they are. We'll get into the mechanics of what you do with all those themes and areas once Mina gets to exploring. A quick reminder to self, I've been consistently forgetting to use one of Mina's most useful spells. She has the Guidance Cantrip and she should have been using it for every skill check. She's failed almost everything she's tried so far, and guidance might well have made a lot of difference. Live and learn, I guess. As to how that last scene came together, I started off by establishing that Mina had seen the cultists meet someone. Who? Well, the answer Mythic gave me was partially watery. This gave me a hint, and so I asked, were they from the underpipes? And I was told yes. And then I asked... Had the barrels exchanged hands? And again, yes. As for the religious festival that was taking place, I asked whether access to the necropolis was restricted and I got an extreme no. In fact, it was actively encouraged and a public ceremony seemed like the obvious explanation for that. And in fact, it tied in nicely into what I'd been thinking about for the scene alteration I'd rolled at the beginning. It occurs to me that I've neglected to mention something. Mythic description questions, such as that partially watery one, are not actually a feature of the base Mythic GM emulator. Instead, they appear in a supplemental book, Mythic Variations 2. As I understand it, Mythic does have a second edition in the works, so I expect in the next release all of that content will be included in a single book. This is probably also a good opportunity to mention the Mythic GM emulator deck which I've got on order from Drive-Through RPG, and This takes all the mechanics that I've been using with Mythic so far and turns them into a very cleverly designed deck of cards. No dice rolling or page flipping required. And I think this will prove a lot more streamlined to use. I'll include links to all of these products in the show notes. At the end of Scene 8, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. We have a thread to close. Investigate Necropolis. We have another thread opened. Investigate underpipes, and we have a character added Pipe Runners. Our Chaos Factor drops to five. She has to wait for what seems like an eternity, but at long last the crowds begin to thin out, and finally she's alone. As Mina stands by the water's edge, she presses a stud in the brass collar she's fastened around her neck. There's a brief glow of arcane power, and then a faint, translucent bubble of energy coalesces over her head. If she's crafted the thing right, this little device should allow her to breathe freely underwater, pretty much indefinitely. Finally, she twists one of the buttons on her greatcoat, and it begins to glow with a warm yellow light. As a light source, it has limited luminosity and range, but it will be better than nothing. That's it. No putting this off any longer. It's time to take the plunge. She's expecting the water to be icy cold, but as she slips beneath the surface, she's surprised to discover it's actually quite warm. It is, however, black as night down here. Her feeble light barely illuminates ten feet ahead of her. The pool is also, she quickly realises, extremely deep. It takes her some time to find the set of metal rungs embedded in the stone wall, but once she does, she is able to pull herself down, hand over hand, ever further into the depths. There must be some sort of exit further down, she reasons. Those pipe runners and their barrels had to have come from somewhere. She glances up, seeing the dim circle of the water's surface far above, and she experiences a momentary feeling of déjà vu. She's so lost in speculation that, at first, she barely registers the dull orange glow below her. By the time she is fully focused on it, the single glow has split into two and is approaching her at an alarming pace. Belatedly, recognising the oncoming danger, she fumbles at her belt for her dagger and pulls it free just as two writhing serpentine forms, glowing with an inner heat, zero in on her. She thumps at the metal cuff on her wrist and a set of interlocking metal plates spirals out, forming a small, circular shield. The pair of blazing snakes, shrouded in steam and bubbles, circle her for a moment. The water around her grows noticeably hotter. Then they strike, first one and then the other, fangs glowing red with heat in the churning water. Although she is able to fend off their bites, one catches her with its superheated, serrated tail as it passes, and she grits her teeth at the searing pain. She slashes at it in retaliation, and her blade makes contact. The snake cockscrews away, leaking what looks like magma. That blow comes at a cost. Getting in close enough to strike these creatures hurts. The heat these things are giving off is intense. Mina shrieks, the sound amplified by the bubble of air over her head. She had taken her eye off the other snake for barely an instant, and it takes advantage of the momentary distraction. Its fangs sink into her thigh, instantly cauterizing the wound, and it locks on, wrapping its burning body around her leg. Flesh sizzles. She stabs at the snake repeatedly, desperately, gasping in relief as the savage thing finally falls away. Dead. Her relief is short-lived. The second snake plunges its own fangs into her arm just above her shield. The heat is unbearable, but she plunges the knife into the squirming, thrashing beast again and again until finally it falls away, the bright body fading, first to a dull red and then to black as it drops away into the darkness. Adrenaline surging through her body, Mina forces her breathing to slow. ...and continues her slow descent. this deep, she can start to feel the crushing pressure of the water. At last, she reaches the bottom of the stone shaft. By the dim light of her coat button, she is able to make out the heavy metal door embedded in the shaft wall. It has a wheel lock. Turning the wheel takes all her strength, but she is able to open the door and enter a small metal chamber beyond... She tugs close the door behind her, and then opens another, similar door in the far wall. The water that had filled the chamber pours out into the dimly lit, pipe-lined corridor beyond, draining away into floor gratings. Venus steps out, and into the underpipes. So our first spot of dungeon crawling, using the Perilous Wild's Dungeon Generation rules, It's probably worth explaining a bit how that works. Each time Mina explores a new area, I'll make a D12 roll on the location table, and that will tell me whether I've come across a common or a unique area, and whether it's themed, and whether there's a danger or a discovery present. For Mina's first delve into the depths, I first checked for any scene alteration, and found there was one. I discovered her route would be flooded as that seemed to make sense in the context, particularly when my dungeon creation rolls gave me the discovery of a shaft. That meant this pool would be really deep. It also gave me a danger. And rolling on the danger table, I discovered I'd encountered a creature looking for food. With further rolls on more tables, I found I was looking at a snake with the elemental trait of fire. Knowing that there was just such a beastie in the monster manual, I used that. It did beg the question, why would there be fire snakes underwater, but I figured, what the heck, they made a pretty cool guard dog, best probably not to overthink it. I then had to figure out how tough the encounter would be, and for this, I avoided the terrifying encounter building maths in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and instead used Cobbled Fight Club, which told me that one snake would be an easy challenge, two would be hard, and three would be deadly. I randomised the result, and I got two snakes. And I'm glad. That was a pretty tough battle for Mina. I think three might well have been too much for her. Water combat was both a benefit and a hindrance for Mina. On the one hand, she gained resistance to fire damage, but on the other, the only weapon she could use without incurring disadvantage was her dagger. And the way I've built her, her weapon attacks will suck until she reaches next level. The battle highlights a bit of an issue with 5e combats can sometimes turn into a bit of a war of attrition as each side repeats the same most optimal tactic until the other side is dead. This is the main reason I spent so long thinking about which system to use for this game. As I mentioned in Session Zero, I think there are better games out there for this sort of solo adventure than 5e, particularly when it comes to combat. Dungeon World, for example, can produce some really exciting, dynamic, cinematic battles with the way that it handles success, partial success and failure. The reason I ultimately didn't go down that route, and instead went for 5e, was mainly due to character creation and progression. I really loved the Battlesmith Artificer as a class, and was keen to try it out, and I couldn't find a way to replicate the interesting character flavour, build, and optimization choices in any other system. I also figured I'd be narrating all the battles anyway, so I could hopefully add the cinematic aspects in there. On the topic of optimization, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention RPGbot.net. I've used his site for ages, and have recently started listening to his podcast, and his stuff's great. Some folks have a bit of a problem with character optimization, possibly because of some of the crazy excesses of 3.5, the Munchkin era, but I think as long as you're not building something that goes against the spirit of the rules, or that is going to impinge on other players' fun, less of a challenge in a solo game, I think that optimising characters can be part of the fun of D&D. Anyhow, Mina survived her battle, but it was not plain sailing. She's down to 25 of her 38 hit points after that battle, and has used one of her two healing surges. With the chaos factor dropping to four, hopefully things will be a bit calmer in her next scene. But we're going to have to wait until next time to find out. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com I'll include any links mentioned there, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any other mechanics information. The Story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.